0: Overwhelmed, Bretto. It is perhaps the number one challenge our Wellness Couch listeners face. It's also the number one reason why many listeners can't get to our live events. Well, we have listened to our listeners and we are putting on our first online event, Release Your Overwhelm. So exciting, MP. Put Saturday, November 23 in the calendar.
1: Log in from your phone or your TV or your laptop anywhere in the world and tune in to Kim Morrison, Brett
0: Hill, Marcus Pierce, Wendy Stewart, and Jason Witten. Release your overwhelm about time, relationships, money, your body, and most importantly, you. Access is just $10 and available at releaseyouroverwhelm.com. Book in now at releaseyouroverwhelm.com.
1: I'm Kim Forrester, and welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. More than just the mundane or pleasure and pain, Eudaimonia calls for us to create a good life. It's about fulfillment, inspiration, joy. So plug in, relax, and get ready for the goodness as we explore the characteristics and daily practices that can help you, your loved ones, and your community flourish. If we're to claim our personal power and find our place in the world, how do we do so while maintaining a healthy dose of humility? Stuart Taylor is the CEO and founder of Spring Fox, previously known as the Resilience Institute in Australia, and he is the author of Assertive Humility Emerging from the Ego Trap. In 2002, in the midst of an incredible career that spread across aerospace engineering, IT, finance, and psychology, Stuart received a potentially devastating diagnosis of brain cancer, which led him on a personal journey back to physical, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual health. Stuart was on the Eudaimonia podcast early this year discussing resilience, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome him back today to talk about the true power of assertive humility. Stuart Taylor, welcome back to the Eudaimonia podcast. It's a delight to have you back here again. How are things in Melbourne today?
0: Uh, it's a great day here in Melbourne, Kim, and uh, wonderful to be back with your program.
1: Now, you have authored the book, Assertive Humility, and in that book, you're very careful to reference what you call assertive humility. So I think we should start the discussion there. Before we begin to unpack what assertive humility actually means, perhaps you can explain why you don't refer to standard everyday humility Is there something in striving to be humble, as we've come to understand it, that is actually detrimental to us?
0: Look, I think over time, the use of the word humility has changed. And in Western society today, it tends to be a meek and mild view of life. Uh, I don't think it originally was that, but in Western society, I think to emphasize that this isn't about meek and mild. It's actually about having that strength to use that humility for the greater good and make a difference in our world, and that's the assertive aspect that I'm talking about. So it really isn't a withdrawal and a almost apologetic position. It's a Mm -hmm. much Mm. stronger position of uh, not about me, but it is about how do I – Seek to make that difference in the in the world.
1: Now, I'm from New Zealand, where standard humility, that apologetic type of humility that you reference there, it's highly valued to the point where I think most Kiwis are shy away from boasting about their abilities at all, or even owning their capabilities. Right. In your view, is it okay? So, is it healthy? for us to claim our talents and abilities, to know them and own them and have a willingness to tell others about them to some respect.
0: Look, I don't think that's what this uh, concept is talking about at all. And if you're not careful, as soon as you get the word assertive into this conversation, it can very quickly become a narcissistic conversation which can take you to a point of arrogance and and how, how great am I, mm-hmm. almost like the selfie syndrome that we've got into. Uh, again, I think the word humility truly does say it's actually not about me and the fact that I do have skills and talents, as everybody does, uh, I seek to use those skills and talents for the greater good. But it's not about uh, trumpeting those uh, skills and talents. It is about focusing on on that outcome for others.
1: So it's not about being apologetic about who we are or the skills and abilities we have. It's not about boasting about them or showing them off. It must be a nice balance in between this assertive humility.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that's an easy thing to do. And I I think the messages that we receive in our childhood from our parents, from our schools – and then through media, and particularly, particularly the generations coming through with social media, part of their lives, it's I think a very tricky line to uh, travel. Everything seems to be exactly the opposite uh, around uh, what do I do, or wh- uh, how do I do it, wh- what do I dress like, um, am I accepted? All of these things take us further and further away from. Uh, this concept.
1: I think overwhelmingly what I found in your book is that assertive humility is tricky. It is complex. And therefore, the steps that we take in order to discover assertive humility or start to claim it are actually quite deep and complex as well. So you write that in order for us to embody assertive humility, we have to sort of move out of ego-based behaviors, correct? That's sort of the underlying premise of your book. Um, And I think many people would be surprised at the different ways that our ego manifests itself. Can you explain the different ways that ego can drive our behavior? You do outline four particular facets of our personality that can come out in different ways.
0: So I think the misunderstanding around ego, and again, it is more and more misunderstood in this world of shopping centers and selfies, but it does, for me, come to light when we overcare mm-hmm. about self, uh, when we undercare about self, mm-hmm. uh, when we overcare about others, or when we undercare about others, and so those those four aspects of overcaring and undercaring really sum up this idea of: Am I uh, protecting this uh, Teflon coating that I'm trying to wear? Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, such that I do stay safe and strong in my world. And probably the most common of all of those is the over-caring about others. And when I say that, I mean the views of others to the point where we're continually checking in Mm. with, am I saying, doing, owning, uh, experiencing the right thing uh, in the eyes of others? And I think the research could not be more clear that this is the quickest way to destroy your own resilience
1: Mm.
0: because it's it's in the hands of an external party rather than coming from within.
1: And that's certainly been my modus operandi in the past, the the over caring about others that desire to be liked. But interestingly, there are also ways that we can undercare to our detriment. And I think when we talk about a lack of humility, most people would understand this sort of sense of uh, undercaring about what others think of us, which can manifest itself in forms of narcissism or apathy. But undercaring about ourselves is also a very destructive way that the ego can present itself. Tell me more about undercaring about ourselves.
0: So th- I think the issue in terms of undercaring about self uh, in a way can uh, be created from overcaring about others insofar as we are pushing so f- hard to achieve praise, promotion dollars. Uh, respect from others that we actually then neglect investment in self that allows us to be living that healthy, happy uh, life where we do use our strengths and skills. However, we are also taking that rest opportunity or that holiday that makes it a sustainable encounter. And Mm. so this trap that we get into where we can't for the, for the life of us, you know, not be switched on the whole time and available the whole time in case we miss something. It means we don't build in that time for ourselves uh, that allows us to be healthy human beings.
1: You define this particular behavior, the undercaring about self, as the me-last behavior. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting, Stuart, because I think for many people being selfless – is something to be celebrated. But there's obviously a sense of martyrdom and certainly a sense of self-destruction if we do not place self somewhere in the picture. Has that been your experience?
0: It's where it's got to start. and I think it's often a confusion between two words that are somewhere in the mix of assertive humility. The first word is compassion, which I see as pretty well synonymous with the term assertive humility. You know, I care so much about others and I care so much about me that I take this strong position and do and say things that are going to achieve a better outcome. The less optimal view of the word compassion is called sympathy. And when I'm in sympathy, you know, it is much more of a a pity party and in a way a disempowering view. And when it's applied to others, it absolutely kills trust, respect and doesn't really solve or help them solve any issues. When it's applied to me, that is that martyrdom that you talk about and I'm the one that ends up getting carted out uh, Mm -hmm. on a stretcher because I've taken that carer's syndrome on and uh, I'm the one that ends up suffering.
1: Let's come back to you were talking about compassion there because overwhelmingly I found your book to be about balance, Uh, Mm. particularly the balance of ego with humility as we've come to know it. And one of the many concepts that you balance in your book is the idea that it's equally as important to show compassion for others as it is to take good care of ourselves, as you were describing there. But how do we go about balancing those needs and why does it actually matter that we do so?
0: I think you use the word balance. I would probably add to that and say it's about prioritization. And by prioritization, I mean when I get out of bed each morning, what do I do that attends to self in Mm. terms of exercise, stretching, meditation, good breakfast, uh, having had a good investment in sleep, taking time on the weekend to do something other than work (laughs) that Mm -hmm. uh, rejuvenates the soul. But all of these items or uh, investments are very much a prioritization that allows me to then be there for others. And and so, sure, it's balanced but it's actually a prioritization. You know, did I do some exercise this morning? Did I, yes or no? Mm. Uh, did I brush my teeth this morning? Well, yes, I tend to do that because I think it's important. Well, then why didn't I do that? Did, why didn't I go for that run? Obviously, I haven't rated it as important, yet over time, it will actually make it impossible for me to be there for others. Mm.
1: And on the flip side, those who aren't quite so used to being there for others would actually benefit from learning to prioritize work or family members or friends at times Uh, through their day.
0: Yeah, it's very, very true, isn't it? And uh, so this all lands somewhere on a spectrum, doesn't it? And uh, the extent to which I spend two hours in that gym each day, uh, you'd have to say, well, okay, where does that, uh, what is missing – who is missing out mm. in that in that <laughs> life that perhaps could be attended to? But you know, no, no, there's no judgment here. I guess is the is the important thing as well. And so each of us are on that journey. I think the the question is: is it actually landing in a way where um, lives around me, including my own, are being improved, or or is it going the, the other way? And and when you look at the research into organisations, you can see. We are not doing this well at all. We are operating with huge levels of busyness, intensity, uh, burnout, mental illness, and we've seen this even at, even in our own research at Spring Fox. It's just a untenable position mm-hmm. and it needs to be addressed at that basic duty of care level, let alone how do we be much more uh, in this space of enjoying life.
1: Like many amazing factors in, in well-being and health, what you say, they're learning to prioritize uh, others and ourselves. It, it's very simple, but it's not effortless, is it? That's the important thing, I think, that people understand. Now, before we move on, I want to ask you about fabricated futures. You wrote about this in your book. What is a fabricated future, Stuart? And how does this concept undermine our ability to enable assertive humility?
0: Look, I, I take a, a very strong view here. Human beings—we are so smart, we are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I have two dogs. Their names Monty and Carlo. And you know what? They are the happiest animals on this mm-hmm. planet. They're fed, they're watered, they have uh, lots of love, but they don't think that much about what's going on. In fact, their life, pretty well, is spent in the present. As human beings, we have this amazing extra brain power to wonder what's going to happen to me in the next minute, in the next hour, in the next, you know, whatever you want to put on that scale. And it's out of this future interrogation where we start to come up with scenarios that perhaps aren't looking so, so great. Mm. And, you know, I've just been asked to go in and do a presentation to the executive team. Well, what does that do in my brain? Mm. And for many of us, it takes us into this scenario, again, ego-based, that says, oh, I'm going to stuff this up and people are going to notice and they won't think much of me anymore and hence a fear response or a panic response or a worry response uh, is the result. And I think this is both the challenge but the opportunity to say, if I want to master stress, the starting point is to know that, one, my brain has gone into the future to uh, create an image of a negative outcome and then, two, start to dispute, reframe, bring myself back to the present, get some assistance, get some training, do something other than the natural choice that many of us take, which is to panic or to do something of that mm. kind. And the more that we are spending time in the future rather than the present, it's just a recipe for uh, elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which over time reduces our serotonin and happiness. And, you know, it's not for a happy life.
1: You had an opportunity, Stuart, to confront the way that you were living your life, and that came through a brain cancer diagnosis. Well, we'd hope that most people don't have to experience something quite that drastic in order to facilitate change. In your experience, what are some of the more subtle signs that we're living out unhealthy or destructive patterns?
0: Yeah, look, it's, um, it certainly was a big journey for myself and for my family and, and friends, and I would certainly not uh, <laughs> uh, advocate it as a pathway but you know what? There's nothing like a enormous mirror test to ask those bigger mm-hmm. questions, and I think there are both macro and more micro ways to lead into that learning. I think one of the macro ways, and it is something that as a society we seem to have done our best to eliminate, and that is what is our spiritual reflection that we might have on a daily or weekly basis? Mm. Look, as statistically, we know that conventional religion has plummeted. Mm. Uh, so investment of time in the Sunday attendance or whatever that might be uh, is, you know, disappeared uh, for, for many people. It doesn't have to be religion, but what might I be doing to take time to ask some of the bigger questions on a semi-regular basis? Mm. Or do we just fill our day and our week with busyness and pleasure and entertainment, which really gives you no opportunity to do that? So I think that is one of the elements. In terms of understanding when I am, perhaps not in an optimal place, There's a a model that we've developed that actually tries to articulate that this downward spiral and it does start at a pretty basic level called the confusion level and it's at this level where I am saying to myself quite often, I'm so busy, I've got so much to do, I don't even know where to start and our research would suggest that there's a significant percentage of the population which is living in that confusion level of the Mm. spiral and by association their organisations. And the ripple effect of that is, if you like, uh, it just gets bigger and bigger rather than a point of recovery. And so when it does get bigger, what you end up with is a place of cognitive dysfunction where the brain just can't even think. It's almost like, you know, you're driving home at night, you don't even remember how you got home, that sort of cognitive checkout. (laughs) Or maybe you're talking to that loved one at home and you haven't heard a word that they've said. You know, we all have this experience, but it's one of those signs that says, you know, am, am I actually living or am I sort of kind mm. of checked out before heading down to a much more dramatic levels such as withdrawal, physical vulnerability where immune is crashing and then down to some of the mental illnesses. and And to be able to be tuning into that journey earlier rather than later is, I think, fundamental. Uh, for anybody that is perhaps not investing in their resilience rather than waiting to the point where your neurosurgeon gives you some really really bad news.
1: So you covered there obviously uh, the need for self-awareness particularly of our emotional state and our physical endurance. You're yeah. also very open about the unhealthy traits that you adopted at various points in your life so the, the, the behaviors <laughs> such as perfectionism, overcaring, arrogance but that's obviously done with the benefit of hindsight. You can look back now and go, oh, look at who I was, look at how I was behaving at that point. It can be really, really difficult, Stuart, to notice unhealthy traits and behaviours in ourselves as in when we are actually displaying them. Can you advise of a simple, effective way that we can actually recognise these ego-based behaviours at the time that we are displaying them?
0: I would... um suggests uh, at least two ways. (laughs) I'm sure there's many more. Number one, who you're hanging out with and Mm. the extent to which you are hanging out with people that in a way mirror and amplify that behavior, then it will seem very normal. And I think the idea of having a mentor in life who is much more of that assertive humility will just make that such a, a stark comparison. So I think that is that is fundamental. The other is what I somewhat alluded to earlier, and that is can you bed down a daily meditation practice where there is opportunity to reflect, to check in, understand the emotions that I've experienced and what has been the impact that I have had on others you know, part of that can be a, a gratitude exercise where you are linking back into positive impact I'm having on others and the extent to which internal chit-chat is that of arrogance and personal yeah, success, uh, I think that becomes mm. more obvious more quickly. The starting point of all of that though has got to be a willingness to go on that journey.
1: I want to clarify, though, when we go on these inner journeys, when we begin a meditation practice, for instance, or a little bit more mindfulness, not everybody is necessarily going to find arrogance or over-caring there, mm. and, and I want to clarify that because I don't want people to sort of go, oh, well, I don't find any arrogance, but what you might find is the undercaring caring of self.
0: And, and more, more common, if we were to look at this uh, spectrum or continuum that I mentioned earlier, it's much more at that end than it is at the arrogance level. I absolutely would say that that is the case and it's been talked about in many research areas from imposter syndrome to you name it. That combination of perfectionism, fear of failure is so prevalent Mm. Uh, right up to CEOs in big organizations. Uh, we see this time and again when we're running executive programs. You'll have this this quiet chat on the side with a CEO who says, I really need, do need to do some work on my self-confidence. And you go, wow. If, if in the first instance, you go, I can't believe that that's the case. But then you think more about it and you go, well, actually, we're always working on our self-confidence as we take on new challenges in life and grow as individuals. So that's okay. It's a question of am I open to going on that journey? And you're right. That is uh, absolutely a fundamental area that is is far more common. You know, and I, I think the related aspect of all of this, and it's almost in the word humility, is that of humour, and <laughs> being, being able to have a laugh at ourselves is so key to. Mm. Implementing the concept of assertive humility, because it does start with a premise that I'm not perfect and actually I don't need to be perfect, and it's okay to get out there and have a crack at life and be confident that you know it will be a growth opportunity.
1: Stuart, you regard courage and vulnerability as being important enablers that can bring us out of our ego and into assertive humility. But being vulnerable is really, really scary for many yeah, of us. Yeah, what would, what would you say is the first step we can take in embracing our vulnerabilities?
0: I think uh, it's something that I've explored more and more over the last couple of years in particular and, you know, aren't we seeing it coming out in every walk of life at the moment, be it in the banking sector, be it in challenges in the church frameworks, sport, this, mm. this this topic around trust is so fundamental. At the end of the day, we are as human beings. We are still animals, and we just happen to be tribal animals. And the extent to which we feel safe enough to be vulnerable is is a starting point. I mentioned cortisol before. Is that stress ho- hormone and serotonin, is the happiness uh, kick? Mm. Well, oxytocin is the trust hormone, and the and the extent to which we are in an environment which we have nurtured or has been nurturing to build these bonds, then we are more likely and open to being vulnerable. And that's where growth happens. It doesn't happen when you're watching your P's and Q's and you're not able to use that that sense of free-flowing conversation and humour. It's going to be very limiting. And so establishing an environment of trust I think, is the prerequisite for any of this being able to happen. And you see this in terms of courage, as you mentioned. Courage isn't easy. In fact, it's quite uncomfortable. It's less uncomfortable if you're doing it within a more trusted environment.
1: I think it comes down to, once again, being cognizant of who we're surrounding ourselves with and also taking responsibility for the environment we are creating through our own actions and choices, correct? If we want to be in a trusting and trustworthy environment, then we need to make sure that we are both trusting and trustworthy.
0: Uh, it, it just works both ways. You're so, you're so right. And uh, we've taken this concept even further as part of the work we do at uh, Spring Fox to say it's actually about trust in action. And so Mm -hmm. it's not about, you know, do I look at you, Kim, and say, oh, yeah, I really think Kim is trustworthy. Uh, It's more about am I open to taking a risk knowing that Kim is trustworthy Mm -hmm. because that's where the test actually happens. Will I actually do something and expose myself knowing that I think how Kim will react to that and and that she will – Do that in a compassionate and supportive way. It's a complex idea, or not that it hasn't been, not that it's new, uh, but it is something that we can be working on in our environments. And particularly, the role for leaders there is huge to create that environment where trust is nurtured in both directions.
1: Very deep, very complex, just like I found your book to be, (laughs) Stuart. Since your experience with cancer, your life and your outlook on life has changed in remarkable ways. Overall, how has recognizing and striving for assertive humility allowed you to flourish?
0: Well, that is a big question. I, I think the word I would use is creating a sense of freedom. Mm. The extent to which you are hemmed in by this cloak called ego is very limiting. The extent to which you're able to shed that cloak and be who you are just opens up so many so many opportunities to be part of life. And I think that is, for me, the, the fundamental aspect of that. And therefore, you say, well, you know what? What might I do now? What might I try now? How might I participate there? Uh, You're less likely to put a constraint on that. Uh, You're more likely to go and play. And I think even using the word play is interesting. Uh, When you look at young kids who play in the backyard with, you know, absolute wild abandon in their imaginary play, they're not wondering what people think of them. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> they have that freedom to to go and ach- achieve that flow and flourish as you as you use that word.
1: Well, that sounds particularly inviting, I must say. Freedom and place, Stuart. May we all find a little bit more of that in our life. My final question is one that I ask every guest on the Eudaimonia podcast. Can you recommend a morning reminder? So this might be a daily ritual, a practice, perhaps even an affirmation that can help my listeners rise above ego-based behaviours. And enable greater assertive humility.
0: Yeah, look, I, uh, in a way, I've stolen my thunder when I mentioned this earlier, but, uh, you know, the most fundamental investment one can make at a self level is that position or that practice of meditation. And Mm. I don't necessarily see that as a, you know sit there and, and get your breathing settled and you know zone out sometimes it can be that but it is a practice where you can actually play around with the concepts of assertive humility within that meditation there's uh, lots of uh, supporting apps that are out there they'll have you know meditations such as loving kindness for example or gratitude or forgiveness or being calm and so i just think it's such a a rich space to practice these concepts within a safe meditation environment to then go and implement them uh, in the real world environment
1: that sounds just fantastic Stuart taylor how can people find out more about you where can they go
0: I think the easiest place would be to our website at Springfox, which is uh, springfox.com.
1: And the book is called Assertive Humility.
0: It's called Assertive Humility Emerging from the Ego Trap.
1: And it is a great read. Very deep, very thoughtful, very insightful. Stuart Taylor, thank you for once again joining me here on the Eudaimonia podcast. I wish you a fabulous day there in Melbourne. Thanks so much, Kim. As the author David Rico wrote, Humility means accepting reality with no attempt to outsmart it. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and find happiness in true humility.